Welcome to Scuba Shack Radio, Episode 18, recorded Sunday, November 3rd, 2019. Scuba Shack Radio is a bi-weekly podcast in support of our mission to empower individuals with knowledge, ability, and experience to venture underwater in pursuit of their aspirations and to advocate for ocean health and sustainability. Hi, everyone, and thanks for listening to this latest episode of Scuba Shack Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Cincerpino. Well, we're back from our trip to Little Cayman, and what an awesome trip it was. We got down there on a Sunday, uh, got into the Little Cayman Beach Resort, and had a great week of diving uh, with 25 of our divers, um, some outstanding dives, uh, great food, and great company, and we're looking forward to another trip down there at some time in the future. We'll have to get that into the schedule. It's also November here in New England, and we've had a couple of frosty mornings, but that's life up here in the uh, Northeast, and um, we're still diving. we got some classes next week and uh, in a couple of weeks after that uh, when we get back from DEMA. So dive season's still going strong, and uh, we're having fun. From my very first pool session in scuba diving in 2004, I've always had a halcyon buoyancy compensator. At Scuba Shack, we're very passionate about the halcyon product line, and particularly with its stability, control, and durability um, that comes with that halcyon backplate and wing. In fact, I still have that original Eclipse 30 halcyon configuration, Mainly, right now, I use it for the pool because over the last few years, I've upgraded to a Halcyon Infinity 30 system, and I did that because of a couple of things. One, it has the weighted tank adapter that I can use, plus it also has the cinch system, so it's adjustable, um, especially when you're going between uh, uh, wetsuits and dry suits. It also um, has, uh, it's primarily my rig now that I use for uh, New England cold water diving. Uh, Up until the little Cayman trip, um, we always would take our stainless steel backplane wing on our travels with us to the warm weather destination. We just have to take the tank bands off and pop out that weighted tank adapter and then we were good to go. But that all changed this time for the little Cayman trip. Donna and I switched over to the Halcyon Traveler BC. In fact, we had five of our divers make that switch, uh, three other uh, of our professionals. Why? The weight. Um, Just to let you know, the Infinity uh, 30 BC, uh, without the weighted tank adapter in it, came in at about 14 pounds on my handheld scale. And I did the same thing with the Traveler uh, BC, and that weighed seven. So you can see half the weight. That's a big benefit, especially as you're trying to pack with your airline bag and keeping in your uh, weight limits. Also, uh, as you're packing things up to getting down to the boat, it takes a lot of weight out of that bag as you're walking down uh, or if you have a, a distance to travel. 
Now, the Traveler Pro or the Traveler BC from Halcyon, the way it works is uh, it has a nylon backplate in it, so that's where it gets a lot of its weight savings. And on that backplate, there are four weight pouches, and each pouch can take up to uh, three three pound weights. So you can see you can put 12 pounds on that backplate. For me, down in uh, Little Cayman, uh, I was using 10 in the backplate with my 3-millimeter wetsuit. Um, I was probably maybe a little bit heavy, uh, but we're still dialing it in a a bit. So 10 pounds on that was plenty for my 3-mil wetsuit. In fact, most of our divers uh, could could, uh, use their 3-mils without having to go to a weight belt or any additional weight um, uh, while we were there. Um, if you need more weight than that, you can put the um, the active control ballast uh, weight pockets on it, uh, that Halcyon makes that go on your waistband. Um, they can hold up to uh, five pounds each, so you get ten pounds there. And if you need even more, uh, you have the option of putting the trim tab pockets that Halcyon makes back on your uh, your tank band, so you can get an additional ten. So a lot of options there for weighting as you go. The Traveler also comes with that cinch system, just like the Infinity, so it's easy to uh, to adjust as you uh, switch your suits and if. Perhaps if you're going from a 3 to a 5 mil, you might just cinch it up a little bit more. Now, we picked the Traveler BC. Uh, Halcyon also has a version of this called the Traveler Pro, and the difference being that uh, the Traveler Pro has a uh, replaceable bladder, and that's not the Traveler does not have that replaceable bladder. Also, the Traveler just comes in a standard 30-pound lift, uh, capacity while in the um, the Traveler Pro you can get uh, options of a 20, 30, or 40 pound lift. So we were very, very pleased with our switch over to the Halcyon Traveler BC and uh, it's, it's now our warm weather go-to BC and it's lightweight, great uh, option, stability in the water, you think you're diving your, uh, your regular infinity. We're very pleased we made the switch. Have you ever heard of the Keeling Curve? Well, the Keeling Curve is a graph of the accumulated CO2 in our atmosphere that's been measured from 1958 to the present. And it's named for a scientist, Charles David Keeling. Now, Mr. Keeling died in 2005, but the work on the Keeling Curve continues on today by his son. Some people think the Keeling Curve is one of the most important works of the 20th century. In fact, science historian Stephen Weir describes Keeling Curve as the central icon of greenhouse gas effect. In his book, The Discovery of Global Warming, he states that, it's, that the Keeling Curve is not quite the discovery of global warming, but it's the discovery of the possibility of global warming. Now, Charles Keeling had been doing studies on CO2 in and around California when he obtained funding to do some larger studies in both the South Pole and on the Big Island of Hawaii at Mauna Loa. And over the years, Mauna Loa was chosen for uh, the long-term monitoring, mainly because it's remoteness and it's free from contaminants. 
So I'm not going to go into the science of how they collect the CO2 measurements, but I want to talk a little bit about the results, and the results are astounding. So from 1958 to 2018, um, we've gone from 315 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. That's 315 molecules of CO2 for every million molecules of air to 406 parts per million. So you can see what a dramatic rise. To put this in a little bit of a perspective, um, scientists were able to tap into gas bubbles in the polar ice cores that they believe are from 9,000 years ago. And in that analysis, they found that the CO2 levels back 9,000 years ago were between 275 to 285 parts per million. What a dramatic rise in a few short years. Primarily, the rise going from that 285 to the 315 is commensurate with the rise of the industrial age in the 19th century. Not only are we spewing more CO2 in the air by burning fossil fuels, we're also uh, deforesting a lot of the, uh, the earth, and that just eliminates a lot of the carbon sinks that are out there. The curve shows the acceleration since 1958, and it's alarming. Another thing that the curve shows is the seasonal variation uh, of CO2 in the atmosphere. And that's mainly because um, when the summer and spring time comes, the vegetation grows and it takes up a lot of the CO2. The CO2 levels drop. And then when uh, the leaves die off and uh, things, the vegetation dies, it releases CO2 back into the atmosphere. And that stayed pretty consistent, about five parts per million, and it's like a little sine curve in the overall curve. Now, up until the mid-20th century, everybody thought that the CO2 would be all absorbed by the oceans. And as we know, that's not the case today. The oceans just can't handle it all, and also it would be creating an acidified ocean out there, which is happening as well. So the Keeling curve is a really dramatic uh, work that shows how CO2 is growing in the atmosphere. Um, And if you want to dive a little bit deeper into some of this, you can also look up at something called the hockey stick graph. And that's more around the the temperature rise, and it shows how the curve goes up, accelerated, commensurate with the CO2 emissions. So a lot going on here with the Keeling curve. It's fascinating science. It's interesting to go and look at. Uh, Do a little bit more research. I know that uh, global warming is real. Uh, We were down in the Caymans, and I was really amazed that the water temperature at this time of year was still 85 to 86 degrees. That may be normal, but I think I was expecting something a little, little bit lower than that, maybe 81 or 82. So global warming, it's real, and we got to address it. On the night of September 25th, 1925, a U.S. Navy submarine, the S-51, collided with a steamship, the city of Rome, off of Block Island. The submarine sank in minutes, and it settled in 132 feet of water. 
33 men died that night on the submarine, and only three survived. The book by Commander Edward Ellsberg, titled On the Bottom, tells a story of the salvage operation um, which he commanded. It's an incredible story of our diving history. The things that they were doing in 1925 were pretty remarkable, and their efforts to salvage that submarine are incredible. Commander Ellsberg describes in great detail the dives, the challenges, the setbacks, and the ultimate success in raising the S-51. It wasn't until July 5, 1926, that they were able to raise that submarine. I cannot imagine what it was like for those divers in full hard hat suits going down 132 feet, walking onto the submarine, and then into the submarine to secure it and make it uh, available uh, to be salvaged. Also, the incredible amount of work they had to do to rig up the submarine with the pontoons necessary to bring it from that depth. I'm not going to retell that story, but thought I'd focus on some of the outcomes and the innovations that, that came out of that. One of the things that they realized back then was that they did not have enough qualified divers in the Navy to be able to conduct these types of operations, so they focused on some of the schooling and training. Another thing that was key in this time was underwater lighting, and they talk about the problems that they had, but uh, then the divers were able to make a lot of suggestions uh, to Westinghouse, and Westinghouse came up, uh, Westinghouse Lab came up with the uh, lamps that were necessary to be able to, to do the work that they had to do at that depth. Another thing that they realized in the first uh, attempts to salvage was that they were going to need uh, better torches to conduct uh, the cutting and work that they needed to do down on the, re uh, the wreck of the submarine. And they came up with uh, the Ellsberg cutting torch. Another thing that they had to devise was a nozzle to blow out all of the uh, mud and debris so that they could put the lifting chains under the, uh, the, the submarine and attach to the platoon. So they came up, actually there was a machinist mate named Waldron who came up with a special nozzle. Um, and that nozzle then became uh, the Falcon nozzle for the named after the ship that was uh, doing the rescue operations. And sometimes it's also called the Ellsberg jetting nozzle. Another thing uh, that they came up with were the, the pontoons, uh, the stabilizing pontoons that were needed for deep sea salvage. So a lot of ingenuity and innovation that had to come out of trying to raise the S-51. Now, as a result of that, Ellsberg had made a lot of recommendations uh, that m did not get implemented um, by the Navy, and specifically, he wanted to put some lifting eyes on the exterior of the submarine and then uh, put, um, have more pontoons and, and get more divers uh, in the Navy. Well, um, as tragedy would have it, there was another submarine accident a few years later, uh, the S-4 submarine, and it settled in 102 feet. And one of the divers uh, was also who went down on the uh, S-4 was one of the divers who had part of the, uh, the salvage operations for S-51, and his name was Tom Eady. And uh, when Tom got to the wreck of the S-4, 
he heard that there were still people alive inside and, and he really could do nothing about that. Um, and, you know, the S4 was kind of the impetus for some of the work that we described in an earlier podcast by uh, uh, Commander Mumsford um, on the deep submarine rescue. Now, uh, there was a lot of folks involved in this. The, the, a lot of the divers were awarded Navy crosses um, and went on to, to more uh, diving careers. In fact, uh, Tom Eady wrote a book called I Like Diving and uh, trying to get a hold of that and see what that's all about. But again, uh, as part of our diving history, I thought it would be good to talk a little bit about this uh, S-51 salvage operation. If you get a chance, uh, get the book called On the Bottom by Commander Edward Ellsberg. You won't be disappointed. I hope you enjoyed episode 18 of Scuba Shack Radio. Appreciate you listening. I'll be back again in a couple of weeks, and we'll have our post-DEMA recap, where we'll talk a little bit about what we saw down in Orlando, things that are going on down there. We'll probably talk a little bit more about ocean sustainability and conservation. And next time, we'll have another installment of Your Next Dive. So I hope to talk to you then. Enjoy the next couple of weeks. Bye. Scuba Shack Radio is a bi-weekly podcast in support of our mission to empower individuals with knowledge, ability, and experience to venture underwater in pursuit of their aspirations and to advocate for ocean health and sustainability. Talk to you next time.